Oh, now it's actually, look at that. Okay, something good's happening. All right, now I have a couple of things. One is um, when Dr. Robert Stacy suggests that we watch a, a, a video clip, then we need to watch a video clip. Um, actually, he has uh, revolutionized life in my, in my home by introducing me to something called Lutheran satire. Yeah. Yes, let's do that. There we go. All right, now, if I can... Um, now, how come it's there and it's not here? Hmm. Let's see if I can do it this way. All programs. Mozilla Firefox. Boy, that's not working too well, is it? Oh, look at that. Oh, it's working great. Now, uh, YouTube. And now, Lutheran satire. Here we go. Have, has anybody seen this besides, I'm sure, all the Stacy family? No. Okay. This is. You, you sort of need to prepare yourself. This is a. Um, this is a group of conservative Lutherans that make make humorous, mostly um, cartoonish videos that make fun of bad things like heresy or cults. And in the process, teach you something very basic about theology. But if you're not into kind of biting humor, it, it, you'll, you'll miss it. But uh, it is hilarious. Before you started, would you close your bookmark so we can have the full screen? Well, it'll blow up, I think, to the whole screen. I think that's right. Are they Missouri Senate? No I, th- I can't tell. I can't tell if they're Missouri Senate. I'm suspicious they're Wisconsin Senate, which is even more conservative than Missouri Senate. I can tell they make, they make fun of... Uh, Evangelical Lutheran Church of America. I can tell they do that because they have one of their cartoon figures interview a, a liberal and, uh, from that church, and it's hilarious. But uh, let's see if we can get this to work. Right here. Can everybody hear that? Okay, Patrick, tell us a bit more about this Trinity thing. Yeah, Patrick, tell us. But remember that we're simple people without your fancy education and books and learning. And we're hearing about all of this for the first time. So try to keep it simple. Okay, Patrick? Yeah, real simple, Patrick. Sure, there are uh, three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yet there is only one God. Don't get what you're saying here, Patrick. Not picking up what you're laying down here, Patrick. Could you use an analogy, Patrick? Sure. Uh, The Trinity is like uh, water and how you can find water in three different forms. Liquid, ice, and vapor. That's modalism, Patrick! What? Mortalism. An ancient heresy confessed by teachers such as Noetus and Sibelius, which espouses that God is not three distinct persons, but that he merely reveals himself in three different forms. This heresy was clearly condemned in Canon 1 at the First Council of Constantinople in 381 AD, and those who confess it cannot rightly be considered a part of the church Catholic. Come on, Patrick! Yeah, get it together, Patrick. 
okay, uh, then the Trinity is like uh, the sun in the sky, where you have the star and the light and the heat. Oh, Patrick. Come on, Patrick. That's Arianism, Patrick. Arianism? Yes, Arianism, Patrick. A theology which states that Christ and the Holy Spirit are creations of the Father and not one in nature with him. Exactly like how heat and light are not the star itself, but are merely creations of the star. That's a bad analogy, Patrick. It is, Patrick. All right, sorry. The Trinity is like uh, this three-leaf clover here. I'm going to stop you right there, Patrick. Patrick. You're about to confess partialism. Partialism? Yeah. Partialism, a heresy which asserts that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not distinct persons of the Godhead, but are different parts of God, each composing one-third of the divine. And who confesses the heresy of partialism? The first season of the cartoon program Voltron, where five robot lion cars merge together to form one giant robot samurai, obviously... a little afterward as well. So what do you guys do for a living? Well, we come from a long line of snake farmers, Patrick, but truth be told, business has been real bad lately. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, about that. <laughs> now, that is Lutheran satire. I will say, I have, uh, I have enjoyed sampling Lutheran satire. And I have only found one thing that gives me deep theological concern. You know that the Lutherans, uh, who are very orthodox, they really don't like Calvinists more than anybody. And there is, there is a uh, play on Calvinism, but it is their weakest line of humor and argument. So um, let's see. Now, will you all let me do one more? There's one more, if I can figure out how to do it. See how to do it. All right. There's one more down here somewhere. I know how to do it. If you would close the bookmark so you could get You think it'll work? All right, let's close the bookmark. Oh, boy, it's getting better. Here we go. This is, this is, no, 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 no. Yes, they meet the Mormon missionaries. Okay, Patrick, tell us a bit more about oh, this no, 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 no. Yeah, Patrick, tell us. Okay, but I keep telling you, my name's not Patrick. <laughs> Patrick, I'm talking to the Patrick standing next to you. My name's Bryce. <laughs> Yeah, 
and that Joseph Smith was going to restore the one true church. Mm. Yes, and you can know that the Mormon church is the one true church because we always have 12 living apostles. Let me get this straight. Yeah, let's iron this one right out, Patrick. According to the Mormon church, you don't have the true church without 12 living apostles. That's right. But also, according to the Mormon church, the apostle John never died and is, in fact, still Roman this earth. According to section 7 of Doctrines and Covenants, that's correct. Mm. Patrick, is St. John the Evangelist currently an apostle in the Mormon church? Ah, <laughs> uh, no, he's not. Speak up, Patrick. Now, Patrick, we can't hear you beneath the sound of your prophet's mountainous continuity here. <laughs> yeah, uh... Oh, really, Patrick? Come on, Patrick. So you're telling me that after 1,800 years with no church to worship in, no fellow believers to gather with, no one to preach to, baptize, commune, or consecrate. That the disciple whom Jesus loved was too busy tap dancing on top of pile of yak manure to claim the spot Jesus gave him on the freshly rebooted apostolic roster. Uh, I don't know about the yak. <laughs> times since the one true church awoke from its near 2,000-year coma, and the guy who wrote five books of the Bible couldn't even be bothered to show up at your Salt Lake City headquarters for an official meet and greet. <laughs> I, I don't... Uh, I tell you what, Patrick. Yeah, turn on your listening ears, Patrick. <laughs> Let's make a deal, Patrick. Oh, we're about to go Monty Hall on you. <laughs> when it comes to your supposed one true church and the disciple whom Jesus loved, We'll convert to Mormonism as soon as he does. <laughs> <laughs> Ashley, I can envision an entire evening of youth group just watching this. You see, even though almost everyone thought he was dead, he wasn't really dead, but, but he couldn't just show up again and tell people he was still alive. Right, because that would have gone against everything he was trying to teach them. Yes, Patrick, we know. The Dark Knight Rises was a very compelling piece of cinematic storytelling. Let's get back to St. John the Evangelist. <laughs> Making fun of stuff. Well, okay. Very good. Very good. Do Mormons believe that John is still alive? Um, well, their volume of Doctrine and Covenants, how shall I say it tactfully? It says some of the most amazing things. Um, this is one of the downsides to having an infallible pope or a continuing uh, uh, pseudo-prophet, is that uh, they actually periodically talk. And uh, that causes difficulty. You know how long ago it was that Jesus lived there? Yes. And, um, for example, their prohibition against, um, against smoking did not, become, did not come because of the attorney general. It came because a church meeting was held in the attic of Joseph Smith's house. And uh, it wasn't smoking of tobacco. It was chewing of tobacco. <laughs> and they had no spittoon, and the church council spit on the floor and Mrs. Smith had to clean it up. And, the, and that night, amazingly, um, Joseph Smith had a revelation that uh, tobacco was forbidden in the life of the church. So, you know, it's, this, is, this is the kind of thing that, that happens. They, they have some other, I mean, they have some other aspects. Because they couldn't empty their coffee cups. That's right. There you go. There you go. That's what I mean. They couldn't drink their coffee to empty the cup. Yeah, I, I did not see anything in, the, um, uh, in Lutheran satire about the underwear thing. Um, uh, they do have some uh, biting humor about some of the rest of it, but... Uh, uh, you know, there was even prophecy about um, 
about American history, Civil War, a whole bunch of different uh, amazing things. And you read them, and, and they're a whole lot like uh, um, listening to, to um, uh, one of these guys on TV who is a mind reader or um, hypnotizes you or a tarot card reader or something. It's just, you know, it's the kind of thing that's so vague you think, well, that can kind of cover most anything. But in retrospect, people go, oh, well, that's, you know, World War II, or oh, that's some other event. Like the fortune cookies that say, you will receive unexpected news. Well, gee, if I already knew it was coming, it would be news. This is true. Yeah, I think I've told the group, I think I may have told you all before, maybe maybe it wasn't this class, but um, uh, when I was in Britain, the, the dean asked me to prepare to teach a class on the cults and uh, told me to gather material, so I I contacted the Mormon uh, church uh, bookstore in London because we were up in Edinburgh. And uh, I I really didn't think very well ahead of time about it. I just called and asked if I could order some theological works. And uh, because I had an American accent, the British lady on the phone presumed I was a Mormon missionary. (laughs) And she said, well, can't you get those volumes on ward distribution? And I said, no, ma'am. No, I cannot. <laughs> and she said, well, okay, go ahead and tell me what you want. And I gave her a list of what I wanted. And uh, sure enough, they arrived in the mail, including the Mormon reference missionary library set that all their boys have to read before they go off to the mission field. And uh, the Mormon doctrines volume, which is basically a it's a it's a, a it's it's like a poorly written vines. Uh, keywords of the Bible. And then they have a, a one-volume systematic theology called um, Reconciliation and Revelation or something that uh, was written in the 1980s. And uh, the opening preface to it says, or dedication page says, I, you know, I dedicate this to my readers and I hope you have as many revelations as I did, you know, while I was writing this text, etc. It's a very open, structured kind of thing. Not a traditional Christian uh, theological work in the continuity of the early church or the medieval church even or modern systematic theologies. It's, um, it's a very uh, existential kind of religion, very uh, experiential kind of religion. But um, uh, I always am interested to see uh, Orthodox uh, theologians interact with them. I do. Yeah, I've got a whole interesting set on, on Mormons. And there has been a, a very heightened dialogue with the Mormon church that has been happening over the last 20 years. And um, the, the, the kind of bedrock disagreement that you have to take on board when dealing with Mormon friends and neighbors is the enormous difference in worldview between polytheism and monotheism. They're polytheists. And so it's just a fundamentally, there's not the same basic unifying principle. Uh, in their view of, of, well, of the world. That's the hard part about talking about Mormons with anybody, though, who doesn't know, know much about them. Because <coughs> they'll be like, but they believe in Jesus. And like, not the same Yeah, I mean, even the word Jesus means something different. Everything changes in their frame of reference, uh, which makes it awkward. And, and they're very determined to agree with you. Uh, I remember we had um, very high Mormon friends uh, in the town I grew up in. My father officed with one at one point, and, and he and his family came over and then invited us into their home. And they explained to us, they started their evangelistic process by saying, you know, we believe everything you believe, except we just believe more. We believe the Bible, but we also believe the Book of Mormon. And, you know, I just, we just looked at him and said, no, you don't. You don't believe anything the same that we do. Uh, you've, you've changed the frame and therefore the meaning of everything. But... Um, 
Well, let's open up with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that your word is true, and we pray that this evening as we uh, open it, as we think uh, about uh, the great uh, triune God and the way that you are to us in Jesus Christ, that you would encourage our souls, that we uh, might be able to confess with the saints who have come before uh, the truths of Scripture about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to very quickly uh, again run through with you. We have we are uh, marching our way through uh, the topics of theology, and we're particularly on the doctrine of God. And we've looked at the existence and knowability of God. His names and nature is what we're covering now. We jumped ahead and did the Trinity, unity and diversity of God, uh, the one in three and the three in one, and uh, the work of the Triune God is where we will end. We we did the. Uh, uh, Trinity first because we took a more Eastern approach and it wasn't out of any great theological um, uh, reason or biblical reason. It's because of the building program and that happened to fit nicely uh, in the timing. So true, uh, true confessions. Both the degree, creation and providence, these three are the works of the triune God. And so uh, before time began, God's uh, will and decision about uh, concerning all things is creation of all things and then his unfolding providence with regard to all things. These are uh, matters that we will talk about at the end of our course. And uh, we know God through revelation, special and general, and the scripture is normative, the Old Testament shadow, the New Testament reality. History in all of its stages from early medieval reformation modern is explorative for us. And so that which is contained in the Old Testament is normative and foreshadows the, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. The early church, uh, there are many good ideas and themes. There are also uh, some uh, weaknesses that they have, like any Christians have had down through the years. The medieval church uh, got very much uh, caught up in uh, uh, a false uh, understanding of worship in sacrament, and that led to difficulties. But we have still there much learned. The Reformation was a going back to uh, the basic uh, scriptural teaching. And so we learn to go back to the scriptures in their original and to keep uh, Christ and his work central in all of our thinking. Uh, and in the modern era, you have uh, folks who are more neo-orthodox in their thinking and then guys like R.C. Sproul that are more uh, traditionally uh, biblical and evangelical. And so in, even in modern authors, we have to be careful and understand them in their context. And we are looking at names, nature and works of God uh, together in our course, and we've already looked at God's Semitic name, El, meaning power, and he uses it as a component of personal and place names, and uh, with the patriarchs, uh, so that we remember his mighty acts in relationship uh, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And uh, it's almost always used in the plural, so it's a it's a power upon power upon power. It reminds us that uh, of the multiplicity of his power. His Jewish name. Uh, Yahweh or Jehovah, depending upon how it is uh, pronounced or written, um, it emphasizes the fact that God exists, that he is the being one, that he's inexhaustible, and that he is related to what he has shown himself already to be. So there's continuity of being in God. We don't, in effect, get jerked around him. The God tomorrow after the sun comes up is the same one that is here today. And then finally, God will be what he will be. That is, we can have confidence about the future because his nature doesn't change. Uh, his name and his goodness to us uh, doesn't change. 
Uh, who is God is a question we looked at last time. He's the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that's different from the question of what is God. Uh, one is the question about uh, God in the three persons. The other is a question about his nature, his divine nature. And when you ask that question, you get a variety of answers in Reformed or, or in Christian history. And the Reformed answer in the larger catechism is an especially helpful one. It's very full. The larger catechism is larger and fuller than the shorter. Um, the shorter catechism, if I can say this with respect, the shorter catechism is so brief as to sometimes almost feel to a theologian like a heresy because it says so very little. But, you know, uh, again, this is important for all of us to remember. Um, children do not spring forth from the womb uh, with uh, their brain fully developed, uh, with their fingers and toes immediately able to play uh, Bach or Beethoven. Um, uh, they're not able to... Um, uh, to run in the Olympics or even bobsled very effectively. We grow through time. And so our understanding of God grows. Um, uh, we need to be very careful and recognize and make room for uh, Christians growing up and children growing up that grow up in the church that they can grow through and understanding. Now, this does not mean uh, that a child who is uh, a teenager, for example, can't have a a, a very well-developed and thoughtful knowledge of God. But it does mean when we're dealing with little ones, we have to give room for growth. And when somebody gets saved, you know, it takes a period of time, a period of learning. So we're all learning. We're all growing. We give thanks to God for that. This is a fuller answer. Fuller is better, uh, except if you're trying to memorize it. Um, God is a spirit in and of himself, infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection. So it emphasizes that uh, he is not corporal. He has no body parts or passions. And that he is infinite. There's nothing that holds him back. That uh, the creation around us uh, does not contain him. Uh, that uh, That's true temporally. That's true spatially. Uh, that is true with regard to each one of his attributes. Uh, his being is infinite. Um, as well as his glory and his blessedness and his perfection. Um, you and I have a little bit of love. Uh, he is infinite in his love. You and I have a little bit of hope. He is infinite in his hope. You know, uh, earlier this week, I will confess to you that in the church office, we began losing hope. Uh, there were these uh, discussions about whether uh, whether summer was ever going to come in Houston and was it always, were our feet always going to be cold? Um, uh, this this, uh, this afternoon, I spoke with my parents, spoke with my mother on the phone there in Augusta, just outside of Augusta, Georgia. And uh, I said, well, Ma, how is it? Well, Daddy got the wood in. They have a, they have a um, praise the Lord, they have a, uh, a little pot-bellied stove in the den. My father and I, when I was a teenager, uh, we found it. We were taking some leaves and things to the dump. We found it at the dump. And the deal in the Aiken County dump at that time was you could go in or you could go out with whatever you wanted as long as you came in with something. So we would take something in, and we would come out loaded to the gills. And uh, we got this pot belly stove. It didn't have refractory on the inside, but Dad was a metallurgist, and I eventually became a ceramist. We knew what refractory was, and we could fix that. And it was missing a handle, well, and it was missing a foot. Well, we found those at a local junk shop, and, and we blacked it up, and, and we piped it into the uh, chimney, and it, it sits on a bed of brick uh, 
there in the uh, in the den, and you can light a little fire in that and just run yourself out of the house. So they're they're huddled there around that. The lights are out. I asked my mother. I said, "Well, Mama, has electricity gone off?" She said, "Oh no, it hasn't." And then my, I heard a voice in the in the background. Yes, it has. <laughs> my mother's blind. She didn't know whether the lights were out or not. She's very optimistic. But uh, thanks, Dad. Mom and Mom and the dog have been chased upstairs because their basement's like they're like a family room, and Dad's burning the wood burning stove so hot that they're upstairs panting. There, <laughs> so, there you go. They're warm <laughs> yeah, they're uh, accumulating an inch of ice tonight, is what I understand. So they're they're going to lose hope before it's out or be tempted to. Uh, God is infinite in who He is in His being. And he said, there's nothing greater than he is. His glory is infinite. His blessedness is infinite. His perfection is infinite. This is something of his character, of his attributes. He is all-sufficient, dependent on no one. He is eternal. Now, the word eternal is one we have to be very careful with. Um, it's one of these words that uh, philosophers have, have had a good time playing with down through the years, and, and they will take it and stretch it and move. But at the end of the day, uh, the idea of eternality in the scriptures is that God is from the beginning and from before the beginning. That, that time is a creation of his and that he is Lord and master over it. And so uh, there's, there's nothing uh, new about him in his being. Uh, he's unchangeable. Now, now that, can, uh, that can upset people because we don't like uh, sticks in the mud. But, uh, you know, you don't like a stick in the mud when what the stick is stuck about is something you disagree with. But when it's a vital, important fundamental principle like whether other people can uh, kill you or not or uh, whether they get to take all your money or whether they get to imprison you or not unchangeableness in the part of uh, the person you're dealing with in control that's a beautiful thing when it's in favor of you so it's not a stick in the mud it's a tree in the ground there you go the lord is uh, got roots as it were he does not uh, he does not uh, bend or change and, and and the changeableness of god and his eternality and his being are all interrelated very interrelated concepts. If you allow change within God, then the concept of his eternality begins to disintegrate, and his being then becomes something other than what it really is. It can't be an infinite being if he's changeable. Um, that God is incomprehensible is something that should come, I think, fairly naturally to us. We, we, um, uh, we try to emphasize in our family that we don't know everything. Um, only God knows everything. Uh, Mom and Dad know almost everything. <laughs> And uh, the children don't know everything. Um, but his incomprehensible nature goes with his infinity. Uh, and so there's always uh, uh, something wonderful and new for a finite creature about, the, about God. That word just kind of takes all that, the words that came before it, and just encompasses it all and tells you that whatever you thought about those previous words, you don't really know. That's right. That's right. It's kind of like uh, in a mathematical equation putting down the symbol for infinity or dividing by zero. The more you think about division by zero, something that approaches zero, it just blows your mind. Uh, God is everywhere present, uh, and so there's, uh, there's no limitation to him spatially. He is almighty. There's nothing stronger. He knows all things. He is most wise. That's not just um, having knowledge but, or the apprehension of knowledge, but it's the use of knowledge. And so this begins at the frontier of God. Um, not just knowing all things, but able to use that knowledge uh, being um, without diminution in the way that he uses that knowledge. He is most holy. He is most just. He is most merciful. And, you know, in finite creatures, those three things are ultimately uh, 
impossible in a fallen world for us to imagine how they go together. But they do in God. And he is gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in, his, in goodness and truth. And so this uh, kind of bedrock with his mercy and with his graciousness and his uh, abundant goodness and long-suffering is, the, is part of the foundation the being of God for the whole covenant of grace and for our salvation. There's absolutely no uh, external forced reason why God would ever have to save a sinner like me. I don't know about you, uh, but I certainly know it's true about me. Um, we were knocking on doors in Jackson, Mississippi with the evangelism explosion when I was a student. And um, we got to, to a door and knocked on it, and this man opened the door, and uh, we asked him, uh, uh, could we have a few moments? And he said that was fine. And, and his uh, response to the first question of, would you die tonight? Would you, uh, and you stood before uh, the gates of heaven, uh, are you sure that you would be able to go in? Oh, absolutely. He said, absolutely, no question at all that I'm going to go to heaven. And we said, well, well, why is that? I mean, why, if the Lord asks you, why should I let you into my heaven? Why, why should he let you in? He said, it wouldn't be heaven without me. Um, uh, that's not true about him but that's certainly true about God Uh, God is the one who is uh, abundant and gracious and merciful there's nothing in us that forces him or coerces him um, or tempts him per se in order to uh, enter a covenant uh, give us a covenant of grace but he does so because of who he is and his being so what God is sounds a little impersonal and sounds uh, almost uh, sacrilegious in some ways, but it's not. It's a very wonderful question to ask and to answer. Uh, what, yes. What does long-suffering mean? Um, he's uh, extremely patient with the likes of us. Uh, he has shown himself in his covenant to be patient in the... He, he is patient in the way that he deals with sinners like us that he set his love upon. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, he can never get around to actually doing something about sin. He certainly can. And he has the right and the freedom to judge it immediately, but he possesses the, the attribute of long-suffering so that he can uh, not have Adam die the moment he touches or eats the apple. There is a pause of patience to make room for the announcing of the gospel. And and even the long life of our first father and of those early generations of the ancients is all making room uh, for the growth and the filling up of the church. So he's very patient with us. Uh, So he's a spirit. Talk about his uh, infinity and his character. All of those are important for us. What I didn't get to last time was the question of what does God reveal himself to be? We have to be very clear when we're studying the doctrine of God, that God reveals himself to us in his Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, there is no um, unchristlikeness in God at all. Um, God is not, the Father is not different than his Son. His Son is his likeness. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so our understanding of God and who he is in the doctrine of God fits perfectly with our understanding of the person and the work of Christ. And if we want to understand long-suffering, and if we want to understand mercy, and if we want to understand his graciousness, for us it is going to come most clearly in focusing our minds and hearts upon, upon the word and what it says about his son. Jesus is absolutely at the center uh, of who God is. 
Um, if if there was if there's one important thing that I would have you hold on to from studying the doctrine of God, it's not actually any one particular attribute. It would be that central Christ likeness in our understanding of who God is. And then secondly, we have to uh, we have to also recognize that if this is what God is like, who serves Him? Who serves Him? You have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and they are right now around the very throne in that uh, heavenly temple in the worship center there, uh, in that royal heavenly court. They are served by by seraphim and cherubim, uh, by angels, uh, by beings that we cannot see, but they are real. They serve him uh, most closely closely in that sense and where he manifests himself most clearly and uh, all of us also should serve him in all of our lives because he fills all of time and all of space everywhere there's no there's no time and occasion on which we should not serve him we certainly should always serve him and uh, we need to be aware of the fact that we can misunderstand him This especially happens if we take the scriptures and our understanding of God, this becomes a secondary source. And what we focus upon are philosophical concepts about attributes and their relationship one to another. Because at the end of the day, in dealing with God, we are dealing with one who is far above us. And his revealing himself to us, whether it be through nature, but especially through the word of God, through his work, it's handiwork, but also through uh, special revelation of prophets and apostles of old. His revelation to us of himself is where we should hang our hat and where we should take our, our main cues from. There may be light that uh, helps shine and illumine and refract uh, from the created order or even from how thought fits together as a part of the created order, us made in his image. But at the end of the day, <coughs> we don't work abstractly on him. And that's why I was very happy to take an Eastern approach and deal with the Trinity first so that we have the names of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then we begin thinking biblically together about his attributes. I chose this particular (coughs) illustration from medieval art because of the constant danger and temptation that we face. You know, there's a very interesting thing going on in our culture. On the one hand, uh, the culture is very eager, hip, and modern. On the other hand, the world is so modern and cutting edge and electronic and digital and all of this that people in their religious life, many of them, are kind of swinging to the opposite extreme. They feel disconnected from history. They've grown up in in broken homes. They want some rootedness. They want to feel like they belong to something, something old and ancient. And sure, it's that kind of rooted uh, observation that you were making on a sociological and a psychological level. People want that, especially young people. Um, you have a phenomenon today in churches called the old, the young fogies. Do you all feel like young fogies? I think you all are young fogies, actually. They don't know each other either. They may not know that, but it's true. You know, you get a younger generation that is very intensely interested in knowing about their faith, and they want to hear not just about 21st and 20th century um, uh, preachers or theologians or teachers or writers, but they want to go and read uh, Athanasius and Irenaeus, and they want to hear 
what the early church fathers and others have said as well. And they want to make sure that they understand um, uh, liturgy and, and Christian worship, um, not just from the perspective of the grandparents' church, but also from the perspective of the church from all of history. And per se, that's not a bad thing, because at the end of the day, um, uh, the oldest document that we've got guiding in all those things, of course, is the inspired one, and the others are judged in this light. And, and, but this uh, old fogey phenomenon is part of the reason why we chose something by Calvin from the Reformation. Um, I had the privilege today of giving a, uh, a little uh, teaching lesson to, um, is it the speech class, or do you all have a formal name? The ambassadors, and uh, um, uh, they were uh, one of their assignments was about constructing a, a seven-minute sermon. So I gave a I gave a lecture uh, on sermons and who gives them and and different facets and preparation and etc. And I brought with me a, a copy of Calvin's uh, folio volume of some of his sermons. And um, uh, uh, the young folks today want to read sermons from the Reformation in an earlier period. Uh, because it helps them know as they read uh, sermons that were preached in public during the Reformation, hey, that's the same faith we hold to. I hold to that. I believe that. gives us a very rooted feeling. Well, in the medieval period, you had external, unbiblical uh, kind of ideas that came in, and that ended up impacting uh, even the way the church depicted uh, and educated people through its public art. Uh, you know, there's some aspects that are perfectly fine, um, you know, this is a nice uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, natural scene. Now, you see a castle over here, so that lets you know it's a medieval uh, kind of construction. This is not a David Weekly home. Um, it's not something we find in Katy, uh, but you find that in Europe during the medieval period. And then you have this cloudy uh, kind of region with, with a bunch of little faces here. And uh, I must confess to you, I... I think these, they seem to have wings. I think these are like little angels. Now, the interesting thing is, do baby angels grow up to be big? I don't know quite how angelic development is. Bob, do you know? I don't know the history of it. Maybe so. They'd be the lucky ones, I think. Um, and then here in the center is a depiction of the Trinity. Obviously, there's, a, there's sort of a cross. It's an interesting thing. It doesn't have the normal kind of larger headpiece here, but it does have the sign on it, King of the Jews, and there's a... Uh, there's a figure that is depicting Christ. The thing I find so interesting about these depictions is um, uh, I don't think he's been scourged. At least it doesn't look like it at all. Um, I can tell the face is in agony. But if I just saw this part, then I would say, okay, this maybe this is the real crucifixion. But uh, if I look here, it, it, it leaves me a, a little pale. Um, uh, the, the dove is the Holy Spirit, a symbol for that. Um, we see the realm. Uh, is symbolized there in a, in, a, in a royal kind of way. And then we have sort of Santa Claus dressed up with a special hat on his head. And again, this is the conception of God the Father. And, and when you see that especially, you stop and you take two steps back and you say, wow, this is not a depiction of the infinite. Now, he's old and he's got a beard. Does that make him eternal? No. I, I, have, I have a, a great-great-grandfather. Uh, in a portrait uh, picture uh, hanging in our family um, hall back in South Carolina. Actually, I have one in my cousin's uh, collection of things. I should have brought it tonight so you can see uh, great-great-grandfather Rankin. And he's sitting there with his long beard like this. And he was not infinite. 
and he was not really ancient. Uh, this is a depiction of a kingly kind of figure. Uh, it reminds me maybe a little bit about what I might imagine Abraham to have been in old age. But, but people, people will draw things like this and they will, per, they will project certain feelings towards it based upon the way the face is drawn and the eyes are drawn and, and, and tones and, and all sorts of cultural things. You go to the Baldwin uh, in Glasgow, or excuse me, the, um, the barrel collection in Glasgow, and they have a medieval Prussian tapestry there. And for all the world, you know, you would think that in his back pocket, Jesus has got a, a German driver's license because he's got the Prussian, you know, face and all of that. You can, you can actually look, you can look at the depiction and you can kind of pick the subregion in Germany that the artist was from because he was constructing God in his own mind and own image, as it were. And so how can we misunderstand him? We can misunderstand him when we close this book and set it to the side and we begin being fascinated with other things. Right. Uh, Doctor, right, there's a, uh, in the basement of the, the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., at the time I was there, there's a complete depiction of Christmas, how it's celebrated across the world. And all the figures look like the people who made them. There's Japanese, South American. From all around the world. Every one of them made themselves, made all the figures look like themselves. Also, isn't this is supposed the patron of the person who does the Oh, I guarantee you, whoever paid for the painting, whether it be a bishop or whether it be, you know, the local laird or landowner, I bet he looks a little bit like that. You know, that's one of the dangers is it becomes a form of of self-aggrandizement or idolatry even. So we need to make sure that in dealing with who God is that we, we deal biblically rather than reshaping him to suit our own taste. Okay, let's take a quick break. Okay, Clerk, shall we get started? It's um, it's very good to be back here with you. It's been a while. Of course, we had a uh, a fifth Wednesday in there that we did not convene, and prior to that, my uh, merciless employer would not let me out on time to come here. So it's been like it's been like almost a month since I've seen you guys. So this is, oh yeah, they get that way. Exactly, yeah, yeah, the check cashes, so it's good. We are, um, of course, we're, as you know, we're working through the doctrine of God, and, and this little, uh, handy little book, Truth for All Time, by John Calvin, is sort of uh, helping us sort of think through some of these issues. And uh, I thought we'd take uh, just a quick moment just to point out a couple of little differences here. You know, this, uh, depending on which version of the book you have, the content is basically the same, maybe a different translation, but basically the same. The, uh, what could be confusing is that chapters might be numbered differently. Uh, so we're working through really the first um, uh, section. Section one, there are seven chapters. So we're still in that first section. Uh, next time, uh, we'll hopefully, assuming we get through all this material, we'll hopefully crack into section two. Uh, and then the, the, the page numbering, I'm sorry, the chapter numbering sort of starts over again. So we get to section two, then it's one, two, three, four, and then section three, one, etc. So don't be confused by that. If you are confused by that, take a nap and see if it helps. <laughs> the 
question posed, but you know we're going to start in chapter three. We, if, you, if you can remember, about a month ago, we covered the first two. So we're going to pick up in chapter three, which starts on page three. These are tiny little chapters. And the question posed here is, what must we know about God? When you think about it, that's a pretty, actually a pretty big question. If you have a Bible, maybe you don't. I mean, of course you own one, but if you have it with you, pull it up and turn to Romans chapter 1 with me. And you know these verses, you've heard them before. But Paul says something directly touching on this topic here in Romans 1, starting at verse 19. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Paul states very clearly, we can have significant knowledge of God just by examining his creation. Now that's... um, it's a verse, if you let that sink in a little bit, uh, it really it has more weight than we tend to give it credit for. When I've talked about this with others, not you all, of course, but others in the past, I, I get the sense that, that many Christians look at this, that, you know, I, I see the flowers and they're pretty, so, you know, God must be happy. Or, it's a very shallow understanding of what creation reveals. Isn't that nice? It reveals a great deal more than that, and... Actually, Paul gives us some very specific examples. What is revealed about God? His eternal power is revealed in his creation. His divine nature is... You understand, we are surrounded in our culture by, by atheists who love to appeal to science as some kind of trump card. Well, there is no God. Here's an explanation for how we all got here following some kind of you know, materialistic, naturalistic order of events. You see what Paul says? You're fooling yourself. His divine nature is clearly, he even uses the word clearly revealed. And so they are without excuse. Jump with me over to Hebrews chapter 11. You know this chapter very well. This is the famous, you know, that that hall of faith chapter. But look at what he says here. In the first verse. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Uh, hold, your, sort of hold your thought there. And I want to go back to Calvin's little book here. Because in chapter 3, this is what Calvin says. He says, since the ma- God's majesty is intrinsically above and beyond the power of human understanding and just cannot be grasped by it, we must adore its loftiness rather than scrutinize it. What do you think he means by that? We must... In- we must I love that word, adore its loftiness rather than scrutinize it. That is a question, by the way. I'm sorry. I I probably didn't make that question. I don't know what it means literally, but to me it it meant personally that that when I stopped questioning, um, is this real, does it mean what what Mm -hmm. I've always heard it meant, and just accepted what the Bible said, on face value. Yeah. It it's, it's almost like relieving a burden, right? Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly right. <clears throat> the, uh, uh, 
the carefully chosen words here, I just love these, the adore the loftiness of God. That he is beyond us. That, that in itself is an attribute worth celebrating. You see Calvin's point there. And we are tempted, I think, to do the alternative that he says that we should rather not scrutinize. And we, you can sort of pour into it and try to unpack God and dissect him. Because <clears throat> isn't that what we do with the rest of creation, right? We try to reduce it to its constituent parts. We try to completely understand it. <clears throat> And maybe, <clears throat> excuse me, my voice is passing. It'll, it'll go away completely at some point, but we'll see how long. Uh, there's certainly a temptation to kind of completely master the material order of things by scrutinizing it, by subjecting it. In a sense, if I can completely analyze it with my mind, I am greater than it, right? And you see how it's exactly the opposite with God. There is no possibility that I can completely know him. And we should revel in that fact. Thank goodness we can't completely know him. That would make us at least equal to, possibly greater than him. And that would be a disastrous situation to find ourselves in. The next little paragraph, Calvin adds this. This is why we must seek and consider God in his works, which for this reason the scripture calls manifestation of what is invisible. So, you see what it's saying here. What does creation reveal? Creation, which is quite visible, right? What does creation reveal? It reveals the invisible attributes of God. The things which the author of Hebrews tells us, these things must be accepted on faith. It's a different kind of knowledge. It's not scientific knowledge. It's not, I studied the flowers and the trees and the waterfall and I feel like I know God. No, all you can see is something that may give you the impression of the invisible attributes of God which are far greater, they are lofty, they are beyond, really, our, uh, our final contemplation, certainly above our scrutiny, as Calvin suggests here. Now let me ask you, I'm going to actually come back here, I'm going to write a little something on the board, which is fine if you're on this side of the room, it's terrible if you're back there. <laughs> the Bible sometimes says we are supposed to fear God. There are actual passages in scripture that say to actually put in command form like we are instructed to fear God uh, how do we fear God why would we fear God does anybody here fear God notice here on if you flip over a page Calvin on the top of page four he refers to um, what he calls here true and solid piety that is so what is true and solid piety Fear mixed, I'm sorry, faith mixed with fear. What a strange combination. The faith part, I don't know about you, I'm good, okay. Faith, God, got it, I'm with you. Fear? Why would we fear? You and the best. I, I think what it might be is, at least partially, a warning not to be what I would describe as, as cocky about one's relationship with God, not mm -hmm. to treat it as something that comes to you as a right, but to be in awe of the fact that God didn't have to save you if you didn't want to. That's right. You know, yeah, do you want to add something here? Well, I was just thinking, you know, a, a volcano is, is very finite and a very tiny thing that God created. Yeah, God, on the grand scale of things. You stand yeah. on the edge of an erupting volcano. Okay. Yeah, probably won't stand there very long. You probably yeah. fear the presence of, of that part of creation. Absolutely, right. You stood right. in the presence of God, which is so much more yeah. than that. Yeah. I think you'd be trembling. 
Yeah, and you ought to. It would be right yeah. to do so. When uh, God revealed his presence at uh, Mount Horeb, he said it was so that the fear of the Lord might be before the Israelites to keep them from sin. Yeah, th- so there, fear actually serves a purpose, doesn't it? <laughs> if, if nothing else, it might, at least on occasion, keep us from sin. And even beyond that, it is still just, it is the right reaction to have to our Maker. You know, that's, ultimately I think that's it. We don't usually have, right, the experience of literally being in his direct presence. There are a couple of occasions in the scriptures where we're told about people who do come into his presence. Their experience is universal. They all say something like, I'm going to die. I'm a dead man. Woe is me. That's probably, that's it's an English translation that probably doesn't capture <laughs> what those people really feel. I, I, how often do you use the word woe? <laughs> Maybe it meant something different back then. But And it's not like they were thinking, I think it's appropriate for me to have a healthy fear of my Lord. No, no, it's just what happened. I, ah, there he is. <laughs> woe is me. I'm a dead man. I'm yeah, it's... Often, of course, they just fall, flatten their faces, right? Just, that's the reaction one has. And it's not like one even helps it, right? By analogy, if you were to... Eh, it might not work now. It's about to work. Yes, well, even this, even, even this president of the United States, if you come into his presence, some of you may not... <laughs> that's right just the trappings the the security detail the you would at least fear the security you should fear the security detail right? there's something about genuine authority that tends to it's at least sobering right use the governor I, maybe we should just use the government. Yeah, yeah. Who can be a little silly on in his own right sometimes? But all the time, you just stride right in, you get next to Exactly. Suddenly, yeah, that doesn't. Yeah, but where in Texas, the state level matters. It maybe matters more. Yeah, yeah. One of my uh, one of my favorite philosophers, Niccolo Machiavelli, famously asked this question. Is it better for a prince, a ruler, to be feared or loved? And this is actually a trick question. If I ask you, if anybody ever asks you, what does Machiavelli say? The answer is both. Uh, his, he says, well, really, it's good to be both, if you can pull that off. But then he quickly adds, and here's a little insight. Machiavelli says, men have a hard time. It's quite difficult for humans to be both feared and loved. The implication is, right, maybe there are non-humans, maybe, well, God is both feared and loved. It comes very naturally to him. To us, it's harder to pull off. And since you can make people fear you, but you can't make them love you, he says, then choose fear. I'm just saying, just, you know, don't be like Machiavelli. Yeah, there's, there's a whole book on this, yeah. What? Why not? <laughs> uh, turn with me, <coughs> if you would, <coughs> to um, to pay, it was on page four. Uh, that first full paragraph, the first paragraph break at the top of page four. In looking at this universe, then he says, we gaze upon the immortality of our God. Can somebody help me understand that 
that sentence. In looking at the universe, we gaze upon the immortality of God. Are you just pessimistic? What do you mean? Yeah, I, I don't know, like, where it ends or how it ends. or I mean, that's sort of beyond me, right? I, well, maybe some of you do. I don't know. But. Well, I know, like, energy and matter can't be created or it changes form. You can kind of think of that as the way that God cannot die. That's a good point. <coughs> I, I doubt that's what Calvin had in mind, even. But... <laughs> But maybe it's even, if only Calvin did know that, he might feel even better about this statement. Um, I don't know whether this would fit in with Calvin's level of science or not, but since, since the universe requires a lot of holding together, it requires something more, more stable, more immortal than the universe to hold the universe. Together. Yeah, that's, I think that's probably at least where Calvin's coming from. It's vastness, it's... it's Complexity. You're right. The, the fact that it is. If you go out to West Texas, planets revolving around. Yeah, it all works. Why? Yeah. He had no clue how big. Exactly. Yeah. 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 The thing is, I mean, like, when are you ever? Again, I mean, my biggest example of this is like in West Texas, where the stars like actually twinkle. You know? <laughs> yeah. He would have seen that. Yeah. They, yeah. They didn't have Houston back then. Sit there and stare at it. Ever probably, if you could, and that—that's still a part. That's just creation. Yeah, and a sliver of it. You know what yeah, I mean? I yeah. Think that's more. Yeah. You can't look at the stars. Well, you can. It probably. I'm sure there are people, but I can't look at the stars and not be completely awestruck. Every time, it's not like it gets old, or you're like. Eh. Well, you know, just look at our literature. Look at, at at how we amuse ourselves. Look at how we. The analogies we use, apparently you're not the only one who thinks so, right? Well, and the opposite is true. When you look at the creation of the, the minute things. That's right. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, every intricate part of you know, our bodies or, or the way that, you know, mm-hmm. the cell. And even what they would have might have had in them that day as far as scientific discovery, just watching the way... Yeah, that's exactly. It's staggering. Now, here's the follow-up question, though. Where, where this is the road Calvin's taking us down. Does the universe tell us everything we need to know about God? It seems like it doesn't. Well, need to know for salvation. If you add that, what's the answer? Definitely not. Right. Yeah, and Paul, in fact, in Romans, you can you can know you depend upon him, you can know you need him, mm-hmm. but you can't get yeah. salvation out of. I mean, you can look at the stars forever, as you said, and still not get that. Would it be accurate to say that the natural order tells us everything we know, uh, everything we need to know, in order to know that we need to know more? I like that. You should write that down. (laughs) (laughs) Or you can have a secretary just take notes for you. I think the creation that we can see only drives us to say he's so much more than that. Right, right. If we put all this together and hold it together, 
Yeah, what what being does that, right? I can't even do much, you know, yeah. like, mechanically, let alone physically. If it weren't for my wife, my house would be just total chaos. <laughs> so just, I know what I'm capable of, right? Well, look at how much, like just people that do brain surgery now, what we understand about the brain now, and we have, you know, the tip of the iceberg, so mm-hmm. what he's created mm-hmm. is beyond us. Yeah. So it lets us know how much more... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Over on page five, here, look, look at what Calvin says here. So I'm looking at the very second, the second line from the top. There, he's talking about, you know, creation. There, his works are not evaluated according to the perversity of our judgment, but by the standard of eternal truth. He's talking about the Bible. So what's the other way we know God? It's through his word, right? So we can, we can examine creation. We can see what he does and what he has created. The other thing we can do is go to his word, right? The, the way in which he chose to speak to us. And that's another part of fearing God, because you have to realize God means what he says. There's a lot of things in the Bible that's a good point. That, yeah. that people want to ignore. Like, yeah. I don't believe it. That's uncomfortable. I disagree with that part. Yeah. I like this one, but not that one. Yeah. God means what he says. Yeah, the, all of it. All yeah. Of it. Yeah. He's not kidding. Yeah, exactly. And even if it's something... So I was just with um, a group of graduate students last night, and we were reading through Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. A lot of people who don't want to be subject to the governing authorities. It's, I, I, I don't want to be subject to the governing authorities. I don't care for the governing authorities sometimes. I don't trust them one little bit. But you're right, God means his word. See how Calvin goes on. There his, in, in, the, in the Bible, there, his works are not evaluated according to our perversity of judgment. So it's not, it's not like Paul, the human being, wrote these things down. Paul, the divinely inspired scribe, wrote these things down. You see the point there? It's, it's not filtered through anything. This is God's revelation. When I, or you, dare I even say... When we do that, when we contemplate creation, it's always through our sinful lens. We, we can't help it, right? It's just who we are. But, but his word, now of course, even the word needs to be interpreted, right? But, but his word is presented, it's pure. It's not filtered. It's not corrupted. The word itself is pure. He says what he's saying here. I think he's right. He says, we learn there that our God, who is the only God, who is eternal, is the spring and fountain of all life, righteousness, wisdom, strength, goodness, and mercy. Everything which is good, with no exception whatever, comes from him alone. Which is a pretty good message, I think, to get from the Bible, among other things. Everybody okay so far? Uh, I want, to keep, I want to move on. There's many, 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 many more things we could say, but I want to move on to chapter 4, which, look, it's just right down there. It's like an inch away. <laughs> but think of what we just talked about. What do we need to know about God? That's Calvin's question in chapter 3. Look at this. What must we know about man? That's the question in chapter 4. Have you ever... I'm trying to remember if I've talked about this before. I hope not. Have you ever heard this expression, the duplex cognito? I didn't make it up. Actually, that's pretty close, in fact. Um, it sort of, sort of means like two knowledges, the two things we must know. 
it's a it's a phrase developed. It goes back to the to the church fathers to describe, in a sense, what we're talking about here in these two chapters: that which we must know about God and that which we must know about ourselves. And their position was: we must know both of these things. See, I think we probably have this temptation to think, well. If I know God and I, I master that, I'll be, that'll be good, I'll be just fine. The church fathers, and I think even Calvin himself here, are suggesting that we must also know ourselves. Now, maybe not in the same way, so that's, I think, what chapter 4 is about. Let's look at it here in a little bit of detail. Let's look at the first paragraph, in fact. He says, At the beginning, man was formed in the image and resemblance of God, so that he might admire his maker in the dignity with which God had so nobly invested him and might honor him with appropriate thankfulness. He's talking, about, he's talking about Adam in that sense, right? That's, he's made the way he is, in a sense, so that he can honor God more, because in a way he resembles him. He's, he's like him. He's in his image. That's all of what we were talking about earlier, that artist painting a picture, and they look like them. That's exactly. Who's that guy up there with the big beard? It's that uncle I loved as a child, who's also God the Father. If I ever acquire skill in art, I'm going to put my face in every picture. But I probably won't acquire it, so you're fine. That's right. Something something's just easier. Medieval selfies, exactly. This is going to take a while. I'll be back in a minute here. I'm just going to paint. So that is man in his original state, right? But as you know, you've read Genesis before. It, you don't have to go very far into Genesis before we have trouble, right? And so Calvin even takes us there in the next paragraph. He says, but man, trusting, look at this, in the enormous excellence of his nature and forgetting where it had come from. And, I, 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 boy, that's, talk about just putting your finger right on the problem. Very proud of himself, forgetting why. What, what is, yeah, okay, man is magnificent, Man is a tremendous creation, but he's a creation, right? Forgetting that you aren't this way by your own work. You were formed. Forgetting where he had come from, or it had come from, and by whom it continued to exist. So it's not like God did this once and then checked out, right? The fact that you are here even now is a sign of God's favor. Endeavored to exalt himself apart from the Lord. That's a... That's a pretty harsh condemnation, when you think about it, of Adam and Eve. I think sometimes we tend to... Now, we're Presbyterians, so we know Adam and Eve sinned. You guys, you don't doubt this, right? But we often, I don't know, I've definitely heard in Christian circles, I've heard people talk about it in the sense of, you know, well, you know, Eve was, Eve was tempted. And, and maybe even Adam was, was tempted by Eve. And, you know, you've got this you know, good-looking woman, she's your wife, you like her, she's... Gosh, she, just, she caught up in a weak moment. In a sense, we even try to excuse our first father and mother, or at least lessen the crime. You see here, Calvin does not lessen the crime. What do they do? Don't think of it as biting an apple. Isn't that how so often, just think of even the, the, the portraits you've seen, right? There's usually a serpent wrapped around, there's Eve standing at just the right angle, and there's a apple with a bite taken out of it that's that's cleaning up the image you see you see how he puts it 
forgetting where they had come from and by whom they endeavored to exalt himself apart from God. I don't need God. I can know good and evil. I can live forever. I can be God. Huge, right? The biggest, right? <laughs> They're probably related in some way. Yeah. <laughs> That's not in my notes anywhere. It should be, I suppose. <laughs> Let me just say, I'm, I'm not entirely sure what that means, but, but I think the answer is yes. But what do we, I, I sound like Bill Clinton now. It depends on what we mean by like, I suppose. That is actually controversial. Is is pretty clear, but like might not be. Um, There's a difference between like God and similar to God. Exactly, exactly. It's very clear when you're making that decision. That's, that's exactly it. So, they, were, it, they were the created. That's precisely it, yes. And, and, and you, even, you even sort of touched on it yourself. It's not that they physically bore, like, they didn't look in a mirror. Well, it's kind of like God there. They didn't have mirrors, I suppose, but, but even if they did. Because remember, Dr. Rankin just said it a little while ago. God is spirit. So he doesn't, he doesn't even have a physical image to be projected. So whatever that means, that likeness, is, it's not just sort of, you know, God has two arms and two legs and a nose that maybe extends a little too far like mine, but... That's not God at all. That's not, that's not the way in which they are like him. They're like him in other ways. And, and so are we, of course, but then we have sort of the layer of sin that comes in between there. But. Exactly. <laughs> and so, well, I guess I say I would be no better off than he was, but you were going to jump in there for a second? Oh, I was just going to make a remark that you said it. I should give you an A. It wasn't, there was no grade in the class. But if you did, you would get one. <laughs> Exactly. Just, yeah. Think my thoughts, you get an A. So, if Adam was made in the image of God, would you say he was made after the image of the knowledge of God? After his image of knowledge? I, I don't know. I really don't know. But that's what he was after. That's, we know he wasn't omniscient. Sure, right. Adam was not omniscient. Clearly not. And Otherwise, he wouldn't have been. Yeah. Otherwise, he wouldn't have known. The worst idea anyone has ever heard <laughs> in the world, literally. <laughs> now, the world wasn't as old then as it is now, but even so. He didn't, right. He clearly knew there was a gap, right? There's something to be gained. There's a body of knowledge I don't have, and I'll, then I will have it after I eat this fruit. And that's not just lip service. What do Adam and Eve do immediately after they eat the fruit? They cover themselves. They I'm naked here, right? They suddenly... They were naked before. Now they're ashamed of it. So, yeah, they, they did gain some kind of knowledge they didn't have before. It's just, you know, it wasn't better knowledge than they had before. Some of you might be too young to appreciate this. 
but I think others of you appreciate it very well. There are things I wish I didn't know. There are things I think I would be better off not knowing, but I know them. You know, I have knowledge, but I'm not better off for it. And that would be an example, I think, here. Clearly, God made them in a state they could be quite content in. They could be. But then they can't after, after they eat the fruit. They can't be content. Yeah. They didn't have the, the privilege that we've had of growing up and, and knowing things. Right? That's a good point, yeah. They didn't know that they were living in paradise. Right. And what's to counter that? Well, somewhere there's a non-paradise. Yeah. And what is yeah. that? I don't think they knew that. They didn't have the privilege. Uh, we, we I think they didn't know they lived in paradise, though. And they didn't know what sin was. That's what, it wasn't a lack of a knowledge. It wasn't that they didn't know, it was the lack of knowledge of what sin was. Mm-hmm. And that's what, that's what, when you know the difference between good and evil, they knew good. There's no, there's good, no, they, no, good they knew, they right, know right, they knew good. right, 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 right. So yeah. But he learned sin. Yeah. Uh, Norm's point is that what's, what's paradise if you don't have non-paradise to compare it to? Right. That's what's yeah. But that's, be careful, that, that borders, we, that comes close to heresy, actually. Good stands alone. Good does not need evil to define itself. That's right. But that's, exactly, God does not need evil out there so that he can be different from it. And when they learned the difference between good and evil, the nature of good did not change. Right. Good was not impacted by that. They were, but good, goodness was not. Yeah. This duplex cognito, I want to make sure I, I sort of close the loop here. We need to know God. That's why Calvin takes us there in chapter 3. But he also says we need to know ourselves. What do we need to know about ourselves? We need to know how debased and wicked and corrupt we are. This it's a gigantic problem in our culture. Even even in our Christian churches in our culture, we don't like to talk about sin. But think of the terms that we do use. Salvation, mercy, um, justification. What do those terms mean if there is no sin to be saved from? But if you if you just if you were a child raised in many of our churches in this country, you wouldn't have heard anything about sin maybe your entire lifetime. Not, not from an authoritative way, from a pastor or in a Sunday school class, etc. You see what Calvin's saying? You need to know your sin so that you know that you have the need of salvation. If you don't know something of yourself, now, do you fully know, can you completely plumb the depths of your wickedness? I, I don't think so. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, the scripture says the more you know of him, mm-hmm. the more you understand how how, how bad you are. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I've yeah. heard people say that, you know, uh, people are basically good. Yeah, that's very common. Yeah, yeah. They know very little about how good God is. 
Yeah, if you think that, right, if you think that this is good, <laughs> you are underestimating goodness. Well, that's good. Why hadn't they solved the problem with wars, you know, and famine and all? Yeah. Or crime right down the road, right? You don't have to, you don't have to go very far to see it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That that that's probably that is the best word to capture the condition we're talking about. You see how Calvin concludes chapter 4 here. He says, For man's wisdom, blinded and steeped in numberless errors. Errors beyond counting. That's us. Sets itself against God's wisdom. The will, wicked and full of corrupt affections, hates God's justice more than anything. See how he keeps mincing words, right? And human strength, incapable of any good deed whatever, is furiously inclined towards iniquity. Furiously inclined towards iniquity. But we're basically good, right? If you just... I think it's the harshness of that statement, though, that puts it off. Because it says that man cannot do anything at all good. And in culture, we see kindness. Yeah, I, we see yeah. he gave a quarter to that homeless guy. Yeah. Yeah. But, but our vocabulary is not adequate to describe the difference between yeah. righteous right, right. and sin. It's exactly. Not, it's not bad and good. Right, right. right. And, I think and those are the only words we use. Yeah. With our brothers in the church and, and people outside the church. Yeah. When we try to, when you try to say, you know, people are basically good, they're not saying they're without sin. What they're saying is. You know, we're not beating each other over the head in this room. Right. When you hear Calvin's statement, the fact that we're not all in a pile of fist and blood is shocking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we're not. It's the restraining hand of God that keeps that from happening. So it's it's just hard to live in the extreme. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even when you put fear versus love. Yeah. I struggle with fear and love because... Yeah, it's I, easy to put them against each other, I sure. Yeah. I adequately fear God because I'm adopted in a son. Yeah, and, yeah. And maybe, maybe I don't adequately fear to some people you know, in our church. I'm sure my fear is not adequate to the... Yeah, God. people say a lot behind your back, but yeah. <laughs> but it's a struggle because it's a very complex, very complex relationship. It is. And, and at some point, faith has to come in and, and you trust in the Lord. That, that's right, and... and do we fear him the way we ought to? No. no. Do we love him the way we ought to? No. no. So we're going to fall short, right? Can we? Exactly. I don't think, yeah, this side at least, you know, while, I'm, while I have the relationship with sin that I do, I'm not going to do that the way I ought to. Exactly. Yeah. I, yeah. Just look around, right? Well, on a certain level it is because... The example you gave earlier, there are people out there in, you know, big old riots, and there are people who do horrible things. I'm not that person, so I'm better. Well, that, that's exactly the point. Under, and mean, other circumstances, I could be that person. Yeah. What is the word? Is it a curse word? No. Okay. But it's specific, like that's what's great about German, it's a lot more contextual. Um, And we can sit here and complain about things, and and I am not even trying to call people out because you knew me. Um, (laughs) But at the same point, you know, like we're not better than the people that we don't like, and we're not better than whatever, and I don't know. 
it's just it, we don't fear well either. I mean, I grew up in this house like I'm totally afraid of my parents. Not like afraid to the point of not loving them. Mm-hmm. Like, I adore my father. Yeah, yeah. But there are a lot of things I didn't do wrong because Mm-hmm. I'm not as dumb oh. as my sisters, right? My father. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's quite well from watching them. But I mean, Bless would be in birth order. But my issues that I have with my dad are the same issues I have with God. I mean, like, my fears <coughs> are totally exactly the same. Like, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a matter of degree in a sense. Yeah. Because I don't want to bother him or whatever. Right, right. I don't ask God for great things either because. Yeah. It's just a bigger version of the same relationship. Yeah, yeah. I mean, why do we, why do we even use the word father to describe God? Right? It's it's not in a sense. It's not a I forget how I put this. It's not a literal application of the word, except maybe in the biggest possible sense that you could ever dare to mean it. He is the father of everything. Yeah, but it's, the relationship is quite similar. I I too had a very healthy fear of my father especially his wide leather belt. It was very fearsome. And I learned many excellent lessons and was restrained from many wicked deeds. I say that in all seriousness because of the fear. Now, I love him even now to this day. And I love him in a sense more because I can reflect on those times and think, wow, he really did a good job. <laughs> Things would have been disastrous if it weren't for him. <clears throat> He may still have that belt. I walk in the house and go, is a belt in here? Is it? Okay, we're good, we're good. Exactly, yeah. A really useful analogy that I've heard about being more or less comparatively good is, okay, you got a 74 on the exam and your neighbor only got a 21. The passing grade is 100 and there's no curve. Yeah. <laughs> failures, failures one and all. Your last norm, it wasn't the best, you just better than the rest. <laughs> yeah. I'll have to do the math on that one. We're we're just about out of time. So I'm gonna give you I'm gonna give you the last word. Oh no. <laughs> so when we talk about people being basically good and basically evil, I think a lot of times that word basically doesn't really get defined. But right, right. It certainly allows for exceptions, right? It be used just to mean, you know, a mostly good person. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times when we as Christians talk about being basically evil the way Calvin or Luther did, we're talking about the nature of man. Yeah, and yeah, evil, not yeah. Not that the majority mm-hmm. of his actions, although that's also true. <laughs> Incapable of any good deed, whatever. That's, that's again, pretty inclusive. And, and I think well, you have to fall on top of we actually so all right just promise me if pastor greco asks we stopped at 8 30 all right just that's just tell him that and we'll we we'll all be good sure there is one final word though in the class just something to leave you all with for the next two weeks to bring you back just just try to imagine Dr. Robert Stacy in a ride. It looks a lot like a Capital One card commercial. <laughs> Breaking things, etc. Oh, yeah. We'll come back I, and see more of those. There were, there were riots, yeah. We'll stop here. Um, for next time, uh, read chapters 5, 6, and 7 in section 1, okay? And then, uh, I don't know. If God is gracious, we will get through those three things. Let's, uh, let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are 
reminded tonight in a very pointed and direct way that indeed you are perfectly righteous. You are just. You are glorious beyond measure. It is good for us simply to contemplate you, to, as Calvin says, not to scrutinize, but to appreciate the loftiness that you are. At the same time, Lord, let us not gloss over our own sin. It is so tempting to uh, compare ourselves to one another, to rank ourselves a few notches ahead of our neighbors and, and rest on, on that as if it's an achievement. But, Lord, it's good to know that, um, indeed, we fall, like Paul says, we fall short of your glory. And yet, nevertheless, in your grace and your mercy, you have reached out to us, you have saved us from our sins through your Son, Jesus Christ. And it is a good reminder of that this evening, Lord. It gives us courage, it gives us energy, it fills us with gratitude to go out and serve you in the days to come. As we prepare to depart, then, we ask for your blessing upon us in his name, our Savior's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.